This is a message for those that work in manufacturing across the UK and Ireland. Do your engineering maintenance stores keep you awake at night? Are your engineers spending excessive time sourcing and finding the spare parts they need? Eric's on-site teams take responsibility for your indirect supply chain, including both your MRO procurement and inventory control. And, as the name suggests, we do this while being based on your site. For more information, visit www.erics.co.uk forward slash em. This episode of Engineering Matters is supported by The Optimistic Outlook. The Optimistic Outlook is a great listen for fans of Engineering Matters. It is a podcast for anyone intrigued by innovation across sectors, whether you're in healthcare, infrastructure, energy or beyond. The show is hosted by Barbara Hampton, CEO of Siemens USA, and offers invaluable insights relevant and impactful for all industries. I think what you're really going to like is that Barbara Hampton is not just a CEO, she's a thought leader in the corporate world. In the podcast, you often learn from her journey to the top of Siemens USA, getting invaluable lessons on leadership, decision-making, and navigating the complexities of the modern workplace. Barbara brings a wealth of knowledge, not just about manufacturing, but about its ripple effects across all sectors. Her perspective illuminates how manufacturing innovations are setting the pace for changes in healthcare, infrastructure development, energy sustainability, and more. Regardless of your industry, the optimistic outlook is a source of motivation and forward-thinking ideas. Barbara's expertise in connecting dots between manufacturing and other sectors reveals actionable strategies for innovation and leadership in any field. We invite you to explore the optimistic outlook and join a broad audience that values transformative ideas, including us. Search for the optimistic outlook wherever you get your podcasts. It is July 1966, and England are playing what was then West Germany in the final of football's most prestigious competition, the FIFA World Cup. At half-time, the score is one all, and the tension in the stadium is palpable. But this is not what the engineers from the Central Electricity Generating Board are concerned about. They're more worried about the demand for power, because as soon as the half-time whistle blows, millions of people from across the country boil the kettle. They know that demand for electricity will soar. And it does, by 800 megawatts. It's a huge peak, which increases system demand from 12,700 to 13,500 megawatts. Luckily, the system is ready for this effect, known as the TV pickup. Just three years earlier, a new kind of clean, resilient electricity supply technology called pumped storage hydropower had been added to the system. Unlike traditional hydropower, the generating system is able to send water back to the upper reservoir when there is excess electricity available, making it an incredible natural battery. 
The first 360 megawatt plant was built at Festiniog in North Wales in 1963, with another 400 megawatt station in Cruachan in Western Scotland following in 1965. Within seconds of the football or any popular TV programme ending, these power stations could respond to the sudden demand, providing clean, reliable electricity to homes throughout the UK. This was exactly what the, the power station was designed to do. So it was, it was very fast pick-up in electricity generation. John Armstrong is the station manager at Festiniog for owner First Hydro Company. He's going to tell us all about pumped storage, including why, 60 years later, Festiniog is still a critical part of the UK's energy system. It's very much active and, uh, and still, still commercially successful and, uh, and still, still reliable for the, for the grid operator to call on. And that, says John, is because of its flexibility. It's really reinvented itself over the years. It's so flexible. So the, the, the forethought that's gone into the design of, of Festiniog, where initially it was this enormous demand pickup that they were seeing, you know, traditionally television shows finishing, and that pickup was just getting beyond the, the capacity of thermal power stations to cope with. And then, and then over the years to have seen that kind of same product or flexibility in delivery moving into the, into the uh, realm of the intermittency of renewable power, such as wind or solar generation. It's fantastic, really. That flexibility that we've got is, uh, is, is amazing. Hello, and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. For this episode, we've partnered with consultant Mott MacDonald to recognise the 60th anniversary of the opening of the UK's first ever pumped storage hydropower project at Festiniog in Wales. The company was part of the original design team for Festiniog through predecessor company James Williamson and Partners, and it's continued to provide civil engineering support to the power station ever since. In this episode, we are going to learn about the challenges that faced the pioneering engineers developing pumped storage back in the 1950s and 60s, and the innovative ways in which these were overcome. And we are also going to explore the new role of pumped storage in decarbonised energy systems of the future. But first, we need to understand exactly how it works. This is AJ Chowdhury a hydropower account leader for McDonald, who spent almost 30 years working in the sector. So pump storage uh, is effectively a large-scale, long-duration storage project, which is kind of a little different from hydropower. So a conventional hydropower scheme, will you will have a dam and, an, and a reservoir, one reservoir upstream, and once you... Once you generate through the power station, the water is given back to the river and is not available to be pumped back. But pump storage is one of those kind of schemes where you effectively can reuse the water because you have an upper reservoir and a lower reservoir and you are able to pump back the water when whenever you have cheap generation available, you know. So effectively, it's a, it's a water battery 
a water battery that's charged when the system has spare capacity and discharged in times of need. Like half-time in a football game. In the sense that uh, uh, you can pump water back when you have excess energy and can generate when you are short of energy. The amount of energy depends on the height that the water is falling through, known as the hydraulic head, and the flow rate of that fluid. You are effectively converting the uh, hydraulic head or you are converting the head and amount of discharge. That is a standard equation, rho QGH is equal to power. So rho is the density of the fluid, Q is the volumetric flow rate, G is gravity at 9.81 meters squared per second, and H is the hydraulic head, or more simply, the height that the water is falling. Multiplying these variables together gives the power generating capacity. So you have two important considerations in there. What is the head in the scheme and what is the design discharge, you know? And depending on that combination, you decide what is the size of the size of the scheme is for that matter, you know? So and that feeds into, and you have to do some analysis in terms of what may be the optimum installed capacity of a project, depending on the head you may have available between the upper reservoir and the lower reservoir, and what capacity, which is kind of most optimum, that decides what is the diameter of any, any penstock or, or tunnel or what for that matter. Engineers in the 1940s and 50s were asking exactly the same questions as they sought out the best locations for pumped storage hydropower. Because, as AJ explained, you need two reservoirs, one upper and one lower, with enough of a height difference to create a meaningful hydraulic head. And the engineered parts, the penstocks, shafts, tunnels, turbines and pumps, had to be designed in a way that optimised the flow rates. This is where the work of Scottish civil engineer James Williamson became so important. By the mid-1940s, James Williamson was renowned as the UK's foremost hydropower engineer. He was lead member of the technical panel that advised the North of Scotland Hydroelectric Board, and he'd worked on some of the most challenging hydroelectric projects in the world. His designs had won over early objections to hydropower in the highlands of Scotland, where the Secretary of State had decreed that any such development must preserve the beauty of the scenery. He took this social obligation very seriously, and his designs reflected the importance of both form and function. Although many aspects of hydropower projects are underground, the dams that hold back the water in the reservoirs are often the most visible part. And here, James Williamson did something very special indeed. He introduced the multiple arch buttress dam to the mountainous terrain. This replaced the solid concrete walls of traditional mass concrete dams with grandiose sweeping arches which looked more like ancient Roman aqueducts than impounding structures. After winning local acceptance, the addition of hydropower into Scotland created massive social value for remote communities in the north of the country, not only from the electrification itself but the reinvestment of profit into social infrastructure generated from the export of power to bulk markets. Pump storage, where water could be returned to the upper reservoir after generating power, was the next logical step in an industry that was growing. 
Williamson's work also included conducting site investigations in both Scotland and Wales, looking for unique locations where reservoirs were close enough together that the hydraulic head was high enough for power generation. One of the six sites that he identified in Wales was Festinio, and in 1955, the North Wales Hydroelectric Power Act was passed, enabling the project to go ahead. Sadly, James Williamson had passed away in 1953, but his business lived on through James Williamson and Partners, which was established in 1947. It continued to work on Fistinjog and other schemes, including Cruachan in Scotland, and later the enormous Dinorwig pumped storage project, which became known as Electric Mountain. But that has its own story to tell, and we will do that in a future episode. At Vestinyog, James Williamson's buttress dam was born again. Linstulan forms the upper reservoir of the Vestinyog uh, pump storage scheme, the first major pump storage scheme in the UK. And it's not uh, particularly large as far as buttress dams go but it it forms a very important role in uh, storing the reservoir at the top end of the pump storage scheme. Uh, It's got a height of 34 metres and is 244 metres long. And as you say, it features this this beautiful round-headed multiple buttress um, downstream face, which looks most elegant in the landscape. Alan Warren is the Global Practice Leader for Dams and Reservoir Safety at Mott MacDonald, Chair of DEFRA's Reservoir Safety Research Advisory Group and former Chair of the British Dam Society. He explains that it wasn't just the aesthetics of the dam that made it attractive. And the idea of a buttress dam is to reduce the amount of concrete and therefore reduce the amount of cement, which is a relatively expensive material. So what happens is with a buttress dam, you have these sort of near triangular buttresses on the downstream face, but then gaps in between. And as a result, you can save up to approximately half of the concrete that you would otherwise uh, need to use. So you do need to um, use more shuttering to form those uh, buttresses and uh, there's more reinforcement involved. But um, critically, you can save an enormous amount of concrete and still have a stable dam. Etlin Stulen, engineers at the time calculated that there was around a 43% saving in the volume of concrete required compared to a traditional mass concrete structure. One of those engineers was a partner at James Williamson's called John Chapman. His work at Festinjog began in 1953. One of the founding partners was uh, an engineer called E.J.K. Chapman, who actually designed Stulen Dam after James Williamson's death. But if you look at Stulen and you compare it to Lock Sloy, which was a Williamson design, they are very similar. Um, you know, they're certainly from the same drawing board, shall we say? So a lot of thought went into the how this power station was going to blend into the into the environment and, and be accepted and it really has. This is First Hydro's John Armstrong again and just like the schemes in Scotland, Festinjog sits in a place of outstanding natural beauty. I think this is this is part of the um, the beauty of the power station is that it 
it, it really performs. We've got a great level of you know efficiency, so it's competitive. But it also fits into the into the environment, and a lot of work went in in the early days because we're we're on the edge of the Snowdonia National Park. There was there was a lot of thought went into the uh, facing of the buildings, so that's all in local stone to the point where they had to reopen quarries to um, to uh, source that stone from. The planting of trees, the uh, the disposal of the the rock that was used in the foundations of the of the dam was so carefully thought out that I think one of the first appointments in the project was this landscape designer to make sure that it all it all fitted in and blended into the uh, into the local local area this was just one of the concerns that engineers in the 1950s and 60s had to consider having a hydropower plant that was able to reverse the flow and send the water back to the upper storage reservoir created a host of other challenges. The combination of hydraulic head and the diameter of the shafts that would be used to actually send the water back and forth was greater than had been attempted before. To understand that, we need to understand the structural elements that make up Festinjog. We have an upper reservoir, Stulen Dam, and that has two vertical shafts leading from the reservoir, feeding water into the, into the power station. Even this was not as simple as it sounds. Much thought had to go into the intake structures that fed water into these 4.4 metre diameter shafts, and models were created by the British Hydromechanics Research Association at Harlow to investigate what was called the vortex problem, where fluid began to revolve around the intakes a larger version of water swirling around a plug hole. Installation of a horizontal canopy resolved this issue. So those vertical shafts are 200 metres deep, running into the, into the mountain, and at the bottom of those shafts, they split into two... Uh, each shaft splits into two pressure tunnels, which lead down to the, down to the power station. So uh, those are concrete lined for the first section, 10 foot, uh, 10 foot diameter, and then approximately halfway down the, the mountain, they transition into uh, steel lined tunnels and they uh, traverse down, down the mountainside into the power station. Again, designing that concrete lining kept engineers very busy and they used underground test galleries to prove that the design thicknesses could disperse the hydraulic pressure of the water and that the rock behind the concrete could withstand the load. Just before the power station, those, those penstocks, steel penstocks, there's a, there's a T-piece in them, so one, one aspect of that penstock is connected to the turbine main inlet valve and the other is connected to the pump discharge valve. One of the unique things about Festinjog is that at the time of its design, traditional Francis turbines were not yet able to act as pumps and reverse the flow of water. Therefore, at Festinjog, each of the four 90 megawatt turbines was coupled with a pump. And then in the power station complex, we have the turbines inside the building and below the turbine, 100 feet below the ground level, we have the store, what we call the storage pumps. And then once the water has passed through the turbine, there's a, a short distance of, of draft tube, and then it, uh, it runs into the lower reservoir, uh, Tanagrisha. 
and it's stored in Tanagrisha until we need the, uh, the water pump into the top reservoir again to restart the cycle of generation. What must have been even more satisfying for the engineers of the 1960s was that once Festinyog became operational, it outperformed even the most optimistic forecasts. In a discussion at the Institution of Civil Engineers in 1964, Mr VG Newman of the CEGB congratulated engineers on their outstanding work before sharing the first year's operating figures. Growth of system load had exceeded predictions, and Festinyog had been used more frequently than expected. Rather than save the CEGB £200,000 per year, compared to using old thermal plants to meet peak loads, it had saved half a million pounds. And he predicted that when nuclear power came online, reducing the pumping costs, it would save even more. This was six decades ago, and the station is still working well. We have 1.3 gigawatt hours of, of storage or electricity generation stored in the upper reservoir Stoolen. And so we will be able to operate for about five hours at full capacity of the power station uh, until, we were, until we were empty. It also has several operating modes. Festinio can operate in, obviously in generation and, and pumping but we can, we can operate in this grid connection and, and spinning in air mode, so spin generation as well. This is a standby mode that enables the station to start generating faster than if it was starting from standstill. So the transition between these, these different modes, Festinog will operate and, and transition 100 times a month between these different modes, so it's very much active and, uh, and still, still commercially successful and, uh, and still, still reliable for the, for the grid operator to call on. Of course, engineers in the 1950s did not know how the market for pump storage would evolve. Guy Doyle is Mott McDonald's chief energy economist, and he has spent over 40 years understanding energy markets and regulations all over the world. The early pump storage projects were brought on primarily for system support purposes, and they were owned and operated by the CGB. The Central Electricity Generating Board, as we heard at the beginning, was responsible for generation and transmission of electricity in England and Wales. In those days, everything was owned and operated by them, and they wanted them to provide support services, which means being able to respond very rapidly if you lose some uh, power station somewhere you need to be able to inject power into the system or if you want to if you want to control reactive power etc uh, you want to control your voltage stability and things like that so it was used primarily for technical system support it also was used to manage things like tv pickups and drops in 1950s and 1960s, it was an economic problem. You wanted to keep the grid system supplied with the, with the demand supplied by the, the most economic, highest efficiency plant, so you keep them running the longest. But the peaks of generation required, then that tended to be supplied by the, the, the less efficient power stations. These were expensive, often oil-powered thermal plants. To provide that pickup, 
and cover peak, peak loads, you had to have what you call spinning reserves. So these thermal plants, which were inefficient, were operating below their maximum capability. Then when you needed, you needed a short introduction of power, they had to step up and they had to, they had to introduce more power. And so the CEGB turned to pumped storage hydropower, pumping water when energy prices were low and generating when demand peaked. And the most efficient units that were running was, was through the night. And so the practice of pumping water through the night uh, was in the early days of, of generation and, and operation of Vestinil power station. But in the last two decades, things have changed a lot, with on-demand streaming services reducing the TV pickup demand, and renewable energy making a much greater contribution to the grid. The result is that additional storage is needed more flexibly throughout the day. John says Festinyog is ready for anything, day or night. When we see, we see disruption on the grid system, we are there in the background, called upon by National Grid. And this is not because such power stations have changed. The system has. What has happened over time is that there have been new types of generation and storage which have come onto the system, which has eaten into some of the ancillary service markets that pump storage used to have. Pump storage used to dominate all, pretty much all the, the, the um, ancillary service markets, but... In recent years, batteries, which are much more responsive down to the millisecond level, have captured the real short-term fast response things. That doesn't mean to say that there isn't a role for pump storage. In fact, there's an increasing role because as a result of increasing renewable penetration on the system, this has led to all kinds of you know, exacerbated system balancing issues which are requiring a range of responses from pump storage. Providing a response uh, inertia, which is providing support to the grid when there's uh, a small amount of rotating plant on the system. And this is happening because renewable plant basically don't have synchronous rotating plant. Inertia in the system resists changes in frequency, giving system operators more time to respond to fluctuations in supply and demand. This versatility could prove to be very important in overcoming an emerging problem described by German engineers as Dunkelflaut. One of the challenges that the UK system, in fact many systems around the world, are going to, is going to face is periods that will only happen rarely, but periods of uh, extended periods of low renewables, low wind and solar. And the Germans have given a name to this, they call it Dunkelflaut, which means dark doldrums. Decarbonized energy systems with large volumes of renewable energy could find themselves vulnerable to this weather-related risk. It's going to require that we first draw down the short duration storage, but then we will get into, you know, once you've used up uh, all the cars, the EVs that have been charged and the electric and the batteries, the utility scale batteries, then you need longer duration storage. And this is where there is a, a potential role for pump storage that has a long duration reservoirs, a, a long life reservoir. So they, they could play a role there. 
and uh, there's certainly for six hours plus they're way better than batteries and most of the other storage technologies that are around. In some parts of the world, engineers are planning pump storage schemes that can discharge energy not just for hours or for days, but for months. It's very much about longer storage. It's more about in the marketplace that we are, eight hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, or for example, Lake Onslow that we're involved with in New Zealand, six months. Brian Minhinick leads Mott McDonald's hydropower and pumped storage business. Based in Melbourne, he has worked in the sector for 35 years and witnessed the evolution of pumped storage from system support and peak lopping to balancing out intermittent generation. For the project that he's working on in New Zealand, six months of storage is equivalent to five terawatt hours of storage capability, meaning an installed capacity of around 1.5 gigawatts. To put this into context, in 2022, demand for electricity across the entire country of New Zealand added up to 39 terawatt hours. It's um, an arrangement, funnily enough, to complement system that is dominated by hydropower and it's part of if there's a dry year and how what do you do if you have a dry year well you you'll need to have a level of storage and the storage comes in the form of a of a larger reservoir that can be utilized uh, the scheme can also be used for smaller durations than six months and this is not the largest brian and his team at mont mcdonald are also carrying out technical investigations for an enormous five gigawatt project called Pioneer Burdekin in Queensland. Should it or when it comes into operation will be the largest pump storage scheme in the world. Schemes of this nature are strategic, planned at a national level, but smaller commercial pump storage projects are also moving forward as a partner to renewable generation. Quite a common arrangement that's being looked here is more of an insurance policy for a utility or an owner of generation equipment. So for example, if they own a solar farm or a wind farm, and there are times when the sun doesn't shine in Australia, um, or when the wind doesn't blow, but what will have happened is you would have signed a contract to deliver a certain amount of energy for a certain period. If the sun um, isn't shining because the cloud comes over, you still need to provide that capacity into the market. Whereas now, if you own a pump storage scheme, you can use that pump storage scheme to firm the power that you're providing. It, it gives that firmness to variable energy. For example, at Kidston in North Queensland, a former gold mine that stopped production in 2001 is being transformed into a renewable energy hub that combines solar and wind generation with a 250 megawatt pumped storage hydropower facility. Kidston was, was a uh, a thriving gold mine until a point where the gold didn't get to was wasn't efficient to be removing it so it shut down it all you had there was an existing mine that still required the environmental protection to be undertaken by bringing forward and looking at redeveloping this this asset it's a great decarbonization uh social positive to to the local populace and the local environment because you're actually going to have something that's reusing and existing assets are repurposing, but it's also going to be continued to make sure that the environmental protections go forward. 
it's also offering new opportunities for employment. Both GenX, the, the developer, and the contractors of McConnell Dow and John Holland have made it very, very clear everyone in the area can have a job if they want a job to work on this project. And this is an emerging trend. Projects that are combining renewable generation and both long and short-term storage at the same site. Some are going even further. Here's Guy Doyle again. Now, people are looking at combining pump storage with solar in order to, to provide a smoother profile to feed electrolyzers to make green hydrogen. Now, that could be an attractive uh, proposition, assuming you find a, a cost-effective site for your pumped hydro. And we know projects like this are being considered, uh, even, even in the Middle East, where there's a case of a pump storage project which would use the sea as the lower reservoir. So there's cases like that. And, and we understand there are a number of projects in India where uh, the Indian government is, is certainly supporting application of pump storage to dedicated hydrogen projects using renewables. So this is coming. From a practical perspective, development of pump storage schemes inevitably involves a lot of underground construction. This is something that tunnelling engineer and Mott McDonald technical leader Rosa Diaz knows very well. Like her colleagues Brian and AJ, she's worked on projects all over the world, from metros in London, Porto and Melbourne, to hydropower in Peru and Chile. She says that this is invaluable experience for working on pump storage schemes, which are often in remote locations with many unknown factors. The complexity of the hydro projects in terms of the network of tunnels, shafts, uh, caverns that you find there is uh, absolutely breathtaking. Breathtaking for many reasons, not only related to the scale of these projects, but also to the variety of ground conditions, risks and engineering challenges. The excavation process requires a host of problem-solving skills to excavate these underground structures. She's encountered many surprises in the course of her work. I've heard the rock exploding because it's under too much pressure and it's quite brittle. I've seen fishes coming into the tunnel. I have um, seen also rock that smells really badly, let's say, because, you know, it has a, a organic material. And so then you need, you need to make sure that the, the workers are protected. Of course, Rosa and her team employ the latest ground investigation technologies to learn as much about the underground as possible. But with some caverns sitting as deep as a kilometre within the ground, there's only so much you can learn without actually going in. These challenges were exactly the same for engineers in the 1960s. A lot of the engineering challenges are exactly the same as they were. Because as you can appreciate, engineering is associated with mathematics and physics and to all intents and purposes, those haven't changed. What has changed are the tools available. So you're looking to utilise the technology, the computing power that we now have at our uh, disposal to assess what's the steel thickness, what's the concrete thicknesses you need for waterways, and can you actually find efficiencies in that 
using finite element analysis and com computerized fluid dynamics to do that assessment. Whereas in a generation before, it might have been more from a tried and tested method. There would have probably actually been trials that would have would have been undertaken to see how this worked, rather than using computers to almost provide a digital model that you'd have almost had a real model or a, a more physical model. This is exactly what John Chapman and his fellow engineers had to do at Festinyog with their underground test galleries that set new standards in civil engineering design. Little did they know that their carefully engineered pumped storage projects would find new purpose 60 years later. Looking to the future, Festinyog is about to undergo a second refurbishment project of two of the four turbine units to ensure that it can keep providing much needed electricity storage for decades into the future. The uh, design life of the, of the power station was, was 40 years. We had some overhauls in the, in the 1990s and then we've replanted units one and two. They came online in 20, at the back of uh, 2021. They've operated reliably since then. And in 2024, we will start the replanting of Festinyog 3 and 4. This will further extend the life of the power station way into the future and support the UK transitioning to a decarbonised energy system. Not only is hydropower itself inherently green, pumped storage can provide system stability that enables a greater proportion of renewable electricity generation. I see the, the, the role of pump storage as a reinvigoration of what it was 60 years ago. It's found a new life. And what that tells me is it has that flexibility to fit with the needs of others, of other forms of generation. And I think that, that, that that's important in, in the marketplace because energy generation is changing. It's evolving. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Bernadette Ballantyne, hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our own renewable reservoir is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Mott McDonald, and thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, and on LinkedIn.